ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's Playlist episode, we're featuring one of the latest interviews from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest experts and policymakers. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's Forum for Live Journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief, and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes. We all know that semiconductors go into every single appliance we have. What is less known is that in the race for primacy in the 21st century, the United States has recently put in place global limits on the export of advanced semiconductors and chip-making equipment to China. It has done so with little to no international consultation. The impacts of these restrictions could be immense. And it's a story that is really undercovered. I have with me today an expert who has studied this issue for years, both in and out of government, and is here today to tell us why we need to pay attention and what kinds of ripple effects we may have to deal with when China begins to respond. That's in a moment, but first, some housekeeping notes. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. FP Live is where we convene experts and policymakers to discuss world affairs. FP subscribers have the opportunity to ask questions using the comments box, which my producers behind the scenes will send along to me. I already have some terrific ones in hand from you. So let's dive in. Chinese President Xi Jinping, who just secured an unprecedented third term, opened the 20th Communist Party Congress with a speech that put new emphasis on security over growth and highlighted the need for China to become more self-reliant to deal with a more hostile world. This emphasis on self-reliance isn't coming in isolation. Xi's speech came just two weeks after Washington announced its most aggressive sanctions on Beijing to date. In an effort to curtail China's technological and military capabilities, the Biden administration said it was placing new export controls on Beijing. In effect, these new curbs block supercomputer components from reaching China. The crackdown marks the most significant action by Washington against Beijing on tech exports in decades. So what does all of this mean? How does it affect US-China relations? How will other countries respond? What does it mean for the private sector? So many questions 
And as I said, I have just the perfect guest. John Bateman is a senior fellow in the Technology and International Affairs Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. At Carnegie, John focuses on US-China tech tensions, global influence operations, and systemic cyber risk. He previously served as the Director for Cyber Strategy Implementation in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. John, thanks for joining me. Hey, great to be with you, Ravi. All right. Welcome to FP Live. You're first with us and the first of many, I'm sure. So let me just start by saying this. John wrote an important piece in foreign policy last month explaining the importance of the Biden administration's new restrictions on China. It was one of our most read pieces last month. And John, for the few people who haven't read your piece yet, just bring us up to speed. What exactly were these new restrictions? Why were they important? Well, Ravi, as you mentioned, there's been uh, multi-dimensional new export restrictions imposed on uh, China's ability to import advanced high-end semiconductors, the finished chips that are used for artificial intelligence and advanced computing. Uh, they've also been blocked from importing the equipment that is used to manufacture those semiconductors and the components that are used to go into that manufacturing equipment. So the United States has gone deep down into the technology stack to try to thwart and ultimately freeze China's development of semiconductor technology at its current levels. Uh, this is probably the most sweeping and hard-hitting measure that's been taken against China's tech sector after even four years of pretty significant technology warfare, economic warfare, um, whatever you'd like to call it. And I think it's really important because it signals uh, a really overt um, uh, muscular intent uh, to basically contain and restrict China's technological development. Right. So l let me ask you a question that, that may sound silly, but I'd, I'd like to understand how this works. We know that Taiwan makes something like 92% of, of semiconductors. So explain to me what kind of power America has here. Why, why is its role so important in the supply chain process? That's a great question. And the simple answer is that the semiconductor supply chain is a very complex global supply chain, or at least an international supply chain. And the United States has a pretty critical role in some key nodes in that supply chain. And so it can then leverage those nodes to impose extraterritorial requirements like export controls on others downstream of it. So while TSMC in Taiwan is the world's leading fabricator or manufacturer of finished semiconductors, the plants that TSMC uses contain U.S. technology. And so using mm. something called the foreign direct product rule, the U.S. is able to say anything that's manufactured from those plants has to play by our rules. And because of the long arm of the U.S. law and the need that Taiwan and others have to maintain friendly relations with the United States and uh, potential criminal exposure under U.S. export control rules, they have to comply. Right. And just to riff on that a little bit more, I mean, explain to us why other countries have to comply. So if you are, say, a Nigeria or a Japan um, or a country that doesn't want to comply, you know, what, what what mechanisms does America have to enforce all of these things against, you know, what is clearly a very strong uh, other country, the, the world's second biggest economy? Uh, 
the U.S. takes these things really seriously. And so if you are caught, even as a foreigner, violating U.S. export controls, uh, you can be subject to civil liability. You can be subject to criminal liability. Now, that's a big problem if you ever want to have future dealings with the United States, travel to a country that has um, uh, an extradition treaty with the United States. So the idea of somebody in one of the main countries in the semiconductor supply chain and here, you know, we're talking about countries like South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, um, but also some of the equipment is manufactured in the Netherlands, Germany. Um, it would be unthinkable that uh, a major global brand like TSMC or ASML would intentionally violate these kinds of restrictions. Mm. So then I guess the question is the why. Uh, we know the how. Why is America doing this? So there's a lot of different ways that we can answer that question. The overt justification in the regulation itself is this kind of classic national security argument that China is using these advanced semiconductors and supercomputers to um, develop its military capabilities. And, and this is all true. Um, supercomputers and artificial intelligence can be used to develop um, uh, missile, you know, missile aerodynamic modeling. It can be used to model nuclear explosions. Uh, it can be used for all, all sorts of military purposes. And then secondarily, there's a discussion of AI-fueled uh, intelligence operations and suppression of China's own people. That's the overt justification for what's happening. But it's important to realize that although the U.S. is taking a big whack at China's military development through blocking these export controls, the main brunt of these controls will be felt by China's private sector, because these are general purpose, dual use resources, maybe the best example of this there is. Um, and so by demonstrating a willingness to kneecap China's broad mm. economic and technological development in the civilian, commercial and scientific spheres, that the Biden administration is really showing a kind of disproportionateness that I think signals that there's others inside the administration um, who have intentions beyond just kneecapping China's military. Um, they may want to simply uh, limit China's rise uh, full full bore. You know, and in the piece that you wrote in Foreign Policy, you posited that the quote unquote restrictionists uh, in the Biden administration have won out. So the people who want to restrain uh, who want to contain China's rise. What has the other side been arguing, really? Uh, and, and if you can, why did they lose out? Okay, so that's a great question. So, you know, I propose that there's kind of three basic camps here in the strategy debate about how to deal with U.S.-China technological decoupling and China technology threats. Um, the first camp, which has absolutely no influence today, is what I call the cooperationists. These were folks in the business community, you know, traditional uh, free marketers, people who wanted a win-win technology relationship with China. That really went out the window five to 10 years ago. Uh, then the second camp is what I call the centrists, uh, the people who really also have concerns about China's technological development, but they want to take um, a piecemeal, incremental, careful, step-by-step -step approach, only going after the most sensitive and strategic technologies, doing careful cost-benefit analysis. So the debate is really between these centrists and then what I call the restrictionists, the people who have a much mm -hmm. more hardline, zero-sum mentality, who want to drastically increase the pace and scope of technological decoupling and really hit China hard across the board. 
Um, so mm-hmm. in the Biden administration, there's really been this kind of power battle playing out between the centrists and the restrictionists. And I think this latest foray really shows that the restrictionists have become dominant in mm-hmm. uh, in the Biden administration. And I think to an extent in the broader policy conversation, but absolutely in the political conversation. Yeah, and we have seen for several years now that, you know, one of the things that left and right seem to agree on is is the need uh, to sort of constrain China um, and to, to view it more as a threat than a challenge. Um, but John, since we're talking about, you know, the the idea or the the aim of hitting China hard, let me ask you this. How hard does this hit China? So if, if you're sitting in Beijing, um, how much do these new latest actions hurt? In the short term, they hurt quite a bit. Um, China is well aware of the extraordinary dependence that it has on imports for advanced semiconductors, and it's been pouring tens of billions of dollars into developing its own industries. But these are some of the most complex and sophisticated technologies that have ever been created. The amount of parts and the sensitivity of these parts and the know-how that needs to go into using them all together are just extraordinary, perhaps unparalleled. Mm. So China has really, it's made a lot of headway on developing the uh, lower end chips, the so-called commodity chips, the things that you might find in a car or a toaster or a thermostat. Um, But the very tippy top here, the stuff that's being hit by these export controls, the high-end GPUs that are used in data centers and for training machine learning models. Um, China has no capability of developing those. Um, So I think it's worried. We've seen reports of uh, the government and the private sector in China uh, scrambling to develop some of their um, response plans, uh, which really will be about uh, doubling down on national self-development. But Mm -hmm. it's going to be a long, hard slog. And when you speak of sort of this development, how how many years would such a thing take? Is this, are we talking about a physical manufacturing capability? So are we saying machines or is it a human capital issue? It's both. Um, China is being restricted from uh, importing very sophisticated machines that it cannot itself make. It's also being barred from employing U.S. persons, and that's not just U.S. citizens, but that's um, a broader category, um, who have really been critical in helping some of China's leading semiconductor companies make strides. Mm. Um, So if you talk about the number of years, you know, it's a moving target and it's hard to estimate. People often say that China is uh, roughly 10 years behind the leading edge in terms of its semiconductor indigenous technology development. Um, It will take probably that long, at least, for China to try to indigenously engineer these capabilities by itself. Um, Mm. But that's a fairly speculative um, uh, time window. Uh, and of course, by the time China gets there, it's likely that the world will have already moved on to some other form of te- um, semiconductor kind of technology framework. Right, especially given how quickly um, the the pace of change on advances uh, for this kind of technology. I want to begin to take some of our subscriber questions because we've gotten so many from around the world. 
Dennis Simon sort of riffing on what we're talking about right now um, says, isn't this, these measures, uh, aren't they akin to an act of war? If I was sitting in Beijing, isn't that how Chinese leaders might view U.S. actions right now? And as you mull that, John, uh, a related question from Thomas Brantner, who says, uh, and this is really interesting, he says, is this policy, these new sanctions, do they not stimulate China's quest for strategic autonomy in microprocessors and semiconductors? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd go so far to say active war, uh, maybe active economic war, although, you know, it's an ambiguous term. What I would say is I think that the leadership in Beijing has understood for several years now that the US probably does have this strategic intent to limit its technological development and likely its rise and development writ large. So this is not a surprise to Xi Jinping or his inner circle uh, or to most commentators in China, um, but it mm. will solidify their perspective that the US is absolutely intent on thwarting China. And so they're girding for harsher measures to come, which I think we should all be prepared for. Um, now, when we talk about active war, I think what we need to think about is we've got two nuclear superpowers now who um, are fighting this economic war at the same time as they're trying to manage the most intense hotspot on planet Earth other than Ukraine, which is the Taiwan Strait. Um, mm. So this certainly doesn't help matters for the Biden administration to more or less declare an overt intention to contain and limit China in a broad and fundamental way. Um, this mm -hmm. makes the idea of peaceful coexistence um, that much harder to imagine. Um, so I mm -hmm. think that's a really important point. Uh, sometimes people like to bring up the example of uh, the US and allied trade embargoes on Japan that helped precipitate the Pearl Harbor attack. I don't mm -hmm. think we're there yet, but I think it's worth thinking about what is the line at which China um, simply couldn't live with the uh, um, uh, the choking of the choke points that the U.S. government is doing? Right. And it's uh, an open question, given that, as you put it, the restrictionists have won out um, in the Biden administration and the, the general mood in D.C. seems to be as such as well. Um, you know, how do you go about deciding or figuring out what that line is? But I want to draw you back to the question that Thomas Brantner asked, which is the idea that, you know, in some way, could it be that this policy is counterproductive? Does it stimulate China's quest for strategic autonomy on things like semiconductors, but also other sectors? Yeah, I think China's fully there already. Um, yeah. the, the intention has been declared years ago, and um, uh, the Chinese leadership understands that this is a necessity for its future survival. Um, I do think it, it, it changes the dynamics in, in a few ways. Um, one of them, and my colleague Matt Sheehan has written about this, is that uh, there is a bit of a virtuous cycle that can take place when Chinese companies in the sector are forced to work with each other rather than mm -hmm. relying on foreign manufacturers, right? So let's say you've got the leading Chinese chip designer, and they tend to work with a Taiwanese firm, TSMC, to fabricate their chips. Well, now they can't. So now that leading designer will now be working with the leading manufacturers in China, creating a kind of synergy that didn't formerly exist. So there are some ways in which this could potentially catalyze China's chip development. Um, obviously, China is just going to have to continue to subsidize R&D, um, probably at higher and higher levels. 
Um, now, from what I understand, you know, the numbers, they're eye-popping, eye you know, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars, and China is hugely concerned about uh, waste and inadequate results. But at the same hmm. time, it's a drop in the bucket when you think about China's overall economy and um, industrial policies. So I think we're likely to see continued investments by China. Um, I think if you're the U.S. president, maybe what you need to be worried about is that we can slow China's development for the next five to 10 years, but it's possible that 10 to 15 years from now, in a worst case scenario, they could end up in the same place that they were going to get to before, um, but now um, by other means. Right. Um, Jim White, another subscriber, asks, what is the probability of China retaliating um, by restricting or cutting off the supply of rare earths materials to America and its allies? But also more broadly, you know, given what you've seen over the last few years, how might Beijing respond? What can it do? Yeah, I've been struck that, you know, it's been four years now since Trump's tariffs and uh, dozens, maybe hundreds of export controls visa restrictions, sanctions, blacklists, you name it. And throughout this entire period, China has been very, very cautious about what we might call kind of direct, reciprocal, symmetrical retaliation. Um, mm. I think China realizes that it, it typically has more to lose from engaging in an escalatory spiral, and it tends to prefer to want to hold on to the links that it has with the West until such time as it has its own self-sufficiency and the shoe is on the other foot. So right. I think it's unlikely but, but, that- but John, in, 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 these, in these symmetrical responses, though, um, clearly from what we've been discussing, China doesn't have the ability uh, to hit America as hard as America has been hurting China. It has some ammunition that it's choosing not to use. Um, so rare earth minerals was mentioned by the questioner. That's a huge, huge dependency that the U.S. has on China for the mining and processing of something that all electronics need. That would be a big problem if we lost access to that. Um, China as a manufacturing hub for U.S. tech companies like Apple. Um, China as a source of talent um, for U.S. Uh, universities, companies. Um, China as a source of capital. Uh, China as a source of other raw materials. We could go on and on. So th there are a lot of dependencies there, but I think China is is cautious about using those. But but what I want to say though is that will not always be true, right? Mm. There will come some point at which the calculus in Beijing flips, and Xi Jinping realizes that he's got nothing left to lose, or that he needs to somehow impose costs to change the game. Um, we don't know when that point will come. Um, and I do worry that people really are not anticipating that. They're not thinking mm. about when that point will come. And this is at a moment, you mentioned the 20th Party Congress, where Chinese leadership is becoming more and more opaque and insular and harder for us to predict. Yeah, indeed. And there's also the possibility that, you know, when you unleash nationalism, it's extremely unpredictable in terms of how people, uh, not just top down, but bottom up, what people start demanding and asking for. Um, I want to move a little bit to the rest of the world, because it often strikes me that when we discuss um, U.S.-China relations, we sort of look at it in this silo and imagine that the rest of the world feels the same way, when in fact, you know, the vast majority of countries in the global south, they don't really want uh, the U.S. and China to tussle. Uh, they see these two countries as big trading partners, um, and they want to get along, and they want to maximize their relationships um, with both sides. Um, 
Talk to us a little bit about the lack of consultation, the lack of international consultation on these rules. I mean, you've explained already that America can enforce um, compliance globally, but, you know, clearly it hasn't consulted countries. And so there may be a lack of willingness. Um, Where does that head down the line? Yeah, you know, the actual diplomatic consultations that have taken place are a little bit hard to pin down. But I think what we know is, again, there's a small group of countries involved in the semiconductor supply chain. Um, And the U.S. has had talks with them, but those talks did not reach any kind of um, agreement or understanding or deal prior to the U.S. rollout of these restrictions. So for whatever reason, the U.S. felt like it wanted to take the first step, and it wasn't willing to wait for positive consent from its allies, which I think is an important statement of diplomatic priorities and something that people in capitals around the world are going to take note of. Now, um, a senior U.S. official, Alan Estevez, gave uh, remarks last week in which he was asked Mm. about this, and he claimed that um, U.S. allies really have no problems with what the U.S. is doing. There's been no friction. It's been a comfortable conversation. The threat perceptions are shared and that he's anticipating that in some short period of time, U.S. allies will uh, not only endorse what the U.S. has done, but impose their own parallel domestic controls so that that'll take some of the pressure off of the U.S. having extraterritorial controls. Um hmm. A lot of people are a bit more skeptical of that. I guess the, the proof will be in the pudding. But I think even if U.S. allies do go along with this, they're going to note that the initial move was unilateral um, and they yep. may be going along reluctantly. And so I think query whether that's a sustainable strategy for Washington to just continually drag its allies kicking and screaming, uh, that will have consequences for the positive things that the U.S. needs to do, like coordinating chip subsidies, harmonizing tech regulations, um, ganging up on China to have a unified front. Um, so this this coercive playbook uh, really can only be used so many times before it becomes unsustainable. Yeah, indeed. And almost as if on cue, I have a question slash more of amusing um, from one of our subscribers in India. This is Surendra Kumar, who is uh, a former Indian ambassador. Um, And he says, don't you think that the health of the global economy would be much more robust if the largest and the second largest economies in the world explored convergence and cooperation in economic relations rather than strive for decoupling? More of a thought than a question there. Um, But I want to steer us towards, in the few minutes we have left, um, to a question about the private sector, because we've talked a lot about countries. Um, I want to ask you what this means for companies. So um, if you are, for example, a giant U.S. firm with a big Chinese audience or a market share in China, you know, what kind of exposure do you have? Uh, How does this hurt other global firms that do business both with America and with China and are scrambling to comply uh, with many of these new rules? Yeah. Uh, The hardest hit will be those that are directly implicated, those that are in the semiconductor sector. Um, We see um, uh, some of the major semiconductor companies, their stock prices have taken a hit recently, but it it varies. I think most of them are saying it's manageable, right? So NVIDIA, it's the major supplier of these advanced semiconductors. Um, It gets um, five, six percent of its revenue 
um, from sales of this equipment, uh, sales of these chips to China. So it's mm -hmm. saying that, you know, it can manage, um, AMD, another major supplier of high end semiconductors. It's saying that there's really not going to have a material impact on the on the company due to lack of current sales to China. Um, other companies, um, in the semiconductor e equipment sector and component sector, th there'll be more damage to them. Um, but I think where people need to be looking is beyond that sector. Um, people in any technology sector, and indeed any significant salient sector, whether you, whether you want to call it strategic, critical, or you have some other name for it, need to be thinking not about the direct impact of these controls, but about the indirect impact of the strategic mindset that the U.S. government is revealing to the world through these controls. I think that that mindset suggests that threats from China are viewed in kind of maximal terms. Um, and that we're willing to impose relatively severe and disproportionate controls to mitigate those threats. And that the perception is that this has been relatively cost-free so far. And so there's a sense that we can keep going and that we will keep going. Alan Estevez said that last week. Mm. Um, mm. So I think people in a range of industries, whether it's biotech, quantum computing, uh, the financial sector, advanced manufacturing, they all need to be looking over the horizon and think about, again, not even just export controls, but the the huge um, uh, spectrum of administrative authorities that the U.S. has to pare back the U.S.-China relationship. I think it's only going to continue to intensify in the coming years. Mm. Well, you basically just took the question I was about to ask you, which is, you know, what kinds of, you know, if if things if this is a trend, as it has been for the last four years, um, where is the trend headed? So so how much harsher um, could these measures get? And, and how quickly do you see it moving to industries like biotech or uh, a subscriber called Jack McCarthy wrote in to ask about impacts it could have on pharma? Um, how quickly could those things um, sort of escalate? Yeah, uh, well, we know that the there are a few things in the works right now um, beyond the realm of export controls. So uh, I think relatively soon we'll see in the United States an outbound investment screening regime, right? So an outbound version of CFIUS, which would be an unprecedented uh, government regulation of uh, cross-border financial flows. That's likely to come in the coming months. Um, we will probably also see a regulation on cross-border data flows, uh, the flow of American sensitive data, however that's going to be defined, to China. Um, over the long haul, uh, the administration has basically said that it's going to be uh, looking at uh, export controls on, on biotech, quantum, artificial intelligence. Uh, I don't know how long that will take. These latest controls took a year to develop because of their extraordinary complexity. Um, so it may not be any moment, um, but Ravi, not a week goes by that there is not some major new proposal, new companies placed on the entity list, legislation being um, proposed in Congress. So I would just say it's a very frothy policymaking environment. It's hard even for someone like me to keep track of. Um, mm. So really anything is possible. Wow. Let me ask you this, given um, the midterm elections coming up uh, in a week or so, what, um, how do you think the results would influence what the Biden administration does next? Right. Uh, so one important thing to note is that the Biden administration has 
unimaginable executive authority to impose mm -hmm. uh, export controls and other kinds of restrictions. So it really doesn't need and hasn't relied on any congressional legislation. But I think the political dynamics will change. Um, you're absolutely right that there's a bipartisan consensus on being tough on China. There's there's really no major political figure that argues against um, these these controls or the strategic mindset. Um, so as long as that's the case, then um, I think that a, a Republican takeover in Congress will only um, add political pressure to Biden and the Democrats, um, basically upping the ante to how tough do you have to be on China to be perceived as tough? Um, because okay. we've seen that being tough on China is one of the leading attacks that uh, Republicans, particularly future presidential candidates, have been using against the Biden administration since day one. Uh, the Biden will then need to somehow uh, deflect those attacks. Um, so I think it's likely that we could see more controls. Let me ask you one last question. You know, from from speaking to you, from having read your work before, it's clear that you know, the latest sort of policy turning point, if we can call it that, um, is it causes you some discomfort. Um, you're worried. Um, what are the larger costs of decoupling and where we're headed? It's a great question, Ravi. And I am one of those that is worried. Um, I think one way to put it is that a lot of the things that have been done up until recently have been fairly proportionate, roughly reasonable. There have been some big misses. But I think the, the the kind of selective decoupling that we saw under the Trump administration was was by and large warranted and inevitable. But then the question is, is there a stopping point? Is there a point at which these controls do more harm than good to U.S. interests and to the world at large? And I think we're close to that point now. Um, there's lots of costs from economic costs to diplomatic costs. I think the thing that I worry about most is the U.S. relationship with China and overall global stability and our capacity to cooperate on major global challenges like climate change, pandemics, um, or even just having crisis stability communications with China. Uh, the clearer that it is that the U.S. really is out to contain China's development and advancement in the world, um, it, your mind can run wild in terms of the, the profound mm. geopolitical implications and risks that that creates for, for us all. Um, I think right now the Biden administration and many folks in Washington really feel like the wind is at their backs and that these tough actions are they're working. They're confident in them. They think they're gaining the initiative again on the international stage. And these risks are, in my view, not really on the radar. And that's a big concern to me. For you and for all of us, John Bateman, thank you so much. We could go on and on, but we've got to close here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ravi. You've been listening to FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com slash live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbrow-Tallam, Rosie Julin, and Yurei Wu. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? 
what if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.